You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. You're tuning into Latino Politics and News on 90.1 FM, KPFT. This is Tony Diaz. Today we are celebrating success across the country, but also success here in Harris County. On the national side, we're welcoming back to our show a dear friend, Gustavo Arellano. We are celebrating that he is now a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He joins a long legacy of Latino trailblazers that have used that national spotlight to help increase representation and to shed awareness on our community and culture across the country. Of course, we've always been celebrating his work from his days writing the Calamasco Mexican to the books that he brought to our Nuestra Palabra showcases and now this new step as well. Additionally, here in Harris County, we'll be talking about Latino voter representation with Hector De Leon. He's the author of Hector De Leon's Perspective. He is a advisory board member for Latino Politics and News, and he has just been analyzing the voter rolls here in Harris County. And the big news is he's got some hard numbers about how Latino representation has increased among registered voters. It is no myth that we're going to have a big impact in this next election. He's going to break down exactly what that means. Additionally, we're going to keep you posted on Nuestra Palabra's Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observation. We are organizing 16 events, one for every Houston City Council District. We're coming to your part of town, and you'll have a chance to participate citywide. And of course, we'll share the love across the country as well, on the ground and remotely. That's what you expect from our show and our movement. Thanks for your support. You can stay up to date by visiting nuestrapalabra.org, librotraficante.com, or tonydiaz.net. We want to thank our crew for donating their cultural capital to the show. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, our summer intern to Rice University, Antonio Diaz, another summer intern, Lauri Flores, Stefano Cavasa, and Al Castillo, president of Lulek Council 60. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News every Tuesday here on KPFT 90.1 FM. Join us for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, Tuesdays too. And look for me Sundays on What's Your Point on Fox 26 Houston. Thanks so much for tuning in. Yo no creía en el amor. Oh. Y ahora por ti creo menos, creo menos Por eso te dije adiós Ya me saqué tu veneno, tu veneno Yo te lo di todo Tú me pagaste con traición Me chingaste a mí y a mi corazón Oh, y eso no se hace No me hables de hacer las paces Si ya yo te olvidé Lloré lo que iba a llorar Contigo no quiero ni hablar 
yo te olvidé Lloré lo que iba a llorar Contigo no quiero ni hablar Si ahora me la paso perdiendo Thanks for tuning in to Latino Politics and News We are welcoming back to our airwaves A dear friend of La Causa Of our crew Of Nuestra Palabra Of the Libro Traficantes Of all Tejanos El mero mero Gustavo Arellano How you doing brother? Hey, good, man. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's great to have you because, you know, I got to remind folks that, yes, you are in newspapers, but of course, we loved having you in town as an author launching your book. So I want to give a shout out to your book, starting with Ask a Mexican. Oye, te acuerdas, Mano? <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, yeah. People still ask about that column. No, it's never going to come back because I don't have the copyright to it. Pero... One can still remember all of this mother that we caused with that. That's right. <laughs> well, and that was in the era when we could even have book signings and juntarnos and hang out. It, yeah. It's wonderful memories. And oh, then, those were the days. No, but I mean, the, the, the great thing with that column is that it got me into Texas to be able to travel from Houston to Dallas to El Paso to Chris to Corpus, Digo, all around San Anton, San Anton and all these places. And that actually as like the unofficial um, research tour for my, my third book, my last book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. So I made so many friends along the way. I always, I always like to tell people I am the most ardent defender of Texas that happens so, to be a California. <laughs> I love it. No, and likewise, you know, we got your back, Mano, siempre. You, know? but yeah. <laughs> you, you also kind of tracked the evolution of the demographic because i think that column was key in this breakout moment where people realize oh hey there's latinos there's writing it to me was this fantastic era where it we were news and we were making news and we had a lot of writers like yourself actually steering that vision yeah but for me it was I, I knew that there were mexicanos all around the united states but in doing the <laughs> column and seeing how far it penetrated I was always amazed at, like, you know, I was getting fans from not even Yakima, Washington, but, but like, the Chetham Valley. Like, <laughs> I where they grow all the, all the apples. Not just from, uh, you know, not just Wisconsin, like, Madison, Wisconsin, but Whitewater, Wisconsin. I remember going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is on the edge of Yellowstone Park, and it's, puro ricos ahí, so who takes care of all the ricos? That's a very vibrant raza community wow. there in Jackson Hole, and they carried my columns, so... You know, if people through my column realize that there are Mexicanos even more so all across the United States, and hey, that was an unintended benefit of my columna. No, that's beautiful. And of course, um, I think we may be the only station saying Jackson Hole uh, <laughs> on the air today. <laughs> hey, shouts out to la gente out exactly. there. And then, of course, your other book, Orange County, A Personal History, which was also powerful. It's interesting because I wrote that one and uh, well, it came out in 2008. We're talking about, uh, what, 12 years ago at a time where Orange County was kind of still seen as this superfluous, stupid place in the, in the United States. And now, thanks to coronavirus, we're seen again as a stupid, superfluous place. So <laughs> all this, you know, I try to rehabilitate Orange County. I try to give us a radical voice. But the, on the other hand, though, now uh, our congressional delegation is all Democrat for the first time ever. This county wow. is actually politically purple. It's been majority minority since 2004, but poco a poco, especially the youth, they're reclaiming 
are they're, they're claiming Orange County for themselves, and they're bringing up all these hidden histories. You have all these writers, like barrio writers, which helps out youth in, in Orange County, specifically in Santana. So there is a there is a quiet renaissance that maybe still does not get enough attention from the national media. But ahí vamos. That's exciting. And, of course, you are the, the bard of our gente transferring information from right and left. We did want to call to catch up with you, but also celebrate some of your new trajectory. And that's going to be huge. It's with the Los Angeles Times. We'll let you make that formal announcement. And also some of the reporting you did during the L.A. Times' feature and special section on the Chicano Moratorium. Tell us a little bit about that because that's also exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll start with the moratorium because August 29th was the uh, 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, which was, uh, pro- it was actually a series of protests against the Vietnam War uh, organized by Chicanos all over the United States. But, of course, the biggest happening was when it started in East Los Angeles. So the biggest protest happened on August 29th. Over 20,000 people marched peacefully and held a rally in East L.A., starting at Belvedere Park and then went to Laguna Park. But eventually, the sheriff's department, police departments, all sorts of law enforcement descended upon this rally, started clubbing people, started tear gassing people, fires break out. At the end, three people are killed, including uh, Ruben Salazar, uh, who at that point was a columnist of the Los Angeles Times, you know, speaking, speaking truth to power, comforting the afflicting and afflicting the comfortable and uh, focusing on Chicanos. He's originally from El Paso. He gets killed because a police, uh, a sheriff's deputy shoots a tear gas canister right into his head from about 10 to 15 feet away, instantly killing Ruben. Ruben becomes a martyr, so of course the Los Angeles Times, we're going to devote a package to the 50th anniversary, not just on Salazar, because when people usually talk about the moratorium, they only talk about his killing, but all the cultural ramifications of what the moratorium did. Uh, I mean, how it influenced art, how it influenced La Mujer, feminism within Chicano movement. I did a story about uh, reading Ruben Salazar, reading his story, doing an analysis of his columns, of his evolution. And yeah, people could check it out. You go to LATime.com forward slash Chicano Moratorium. I think all one word. Or if you just go to my, uh, my Twitter account, I've been tweeting these stories all weekend. Now, of course, we remember when we had you here for Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having to say readings, and then we've had you on the Nuestra Palabra radio show. We've actually branched off to a second show, Latino Politics and News, and I bring that up because this is major news that a major national publication is covering our history and culture. Very important to document it in that context. I want to pause and let people know too that especially as hispanic heritage month rolls up on us this is a vital resource additionally i'll be teaching mexican american literature in october so i'm gonna definitely include some of your work as i always do but also we'll be looking at this special la times um, analysis of the chicano moratorium but here in Texas, it's fall, and a lot of schools are rolling out for the first time their Mexican history course, and this is a vital part of all of that, especially because you've had a hand in it as a friend of Teja. So I do want people to support not just you, our cultura, but does it make a difference if there is a response from the community? Does the LA Times take note of that? Oh, yes, please. If you read the story, please send a note, a letter to the editor, Please retweet us, please, and tag the LA Times because the bosses pay attention to everything. And this, this and this only happened because members of the Latino uh, Latino uh, 
caucus, uh, you know, the Times is a union paper and the Lati- and Latinos at the paper, we formed the caucus to push for more uh, coverage and also better representation of Latinos within the newsroom. So this is a project created by almost well, a lot of us members. And so far, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So many stories, are, uh, and we're still telling more stories as we come along. This is, this is just one project, and we're going to group them all together. But you know, it, it's funny because you're in the newsroom and you can tell all these things to your boss and they really won't pay attention. And look, my bosses at LA Times are very, they're very, very uh, nice and they pay attention to a lot of what we say. But one letter to the editor, they obsess over it because they're the reader. You know, readers are the people who keep us, frankly, who keep the lights on, who keep us in, in business. So please, if you enjoy it, spread the word. But more importantly, send a letter to the editor. Fantastic. And along the notes of representation, tell us about your new role as a columnist. Yeah, I know. This one's interesting. So I'm going to, I was, in August, I was announced as a new, as a new columnist for the California section of the Los Angeles Times. But what that basically means is that I'm going to be a columnist. I, you know, as a reporter, your job is just to tell the story, have no opinion about them, just the who, what, when, where, why, and how. As a columnist, now you're able to give your opinion on what you cover. For me, what I'm trying, what I'm going to try to do with the column is really tell the stories of who we were, who we are, and who we're becoming as Californians. But if I'm going to tell that story, well, almost 50% of the population in Southern California is Latino. So if I'm trying to be equitable, basically every other story has to be about a Latino <laughs> or Latina or Latinx, which I don't mind at all. Don't get me wrong. Pero, you know, my interests have always been Beyond just Latinos, I've never, I've never tried to, uh, or I've always pigeonholed myself on purpose, but as a Latino who can write about anything and everyone and is interested in everything, as long as it ties back into this idea of social justice. So again, like, that's my, that's my goal is teach all of us in California and the rest of the country what's going on in California, what are the issues that matter, who are the good people, who are the bad people, celebrate the good and go after the evil. That's huge. So first of all, congratulations. And we all do have to support it because, again, this is towards that whole idea of representation. But on a historical level, you're walking the halls that Ruben Salazar walked in the city he walked. (laughs) Does that dawn on you often? Is it daunting? And kind of how you broke down your approach, that kind of reveals the the ethos you, you delve into in your piece reading Ruben Salazar. Yeah, I, I am not Ruben Salazar. I am not any of the great uh, Latino columnists who, uh, whose, whose footsteps I follow. I'm not Hector Sobar, who's now, of course, an acclaimed author. Agustin Gursa or the late Frank Del Olmo. I can only be myself. And I'm going, and so, yes, I know, don't get me wrong, I know this position comes with a lot of expectations, with a lot of, you know, people rooting for me, but people also seeing whether I'm going to fail. And I, those expectations, the only expectations I'm going to, pay attention to are those of myself, the same expectations I've had my entire career for myself, which is mainly comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. And I, you know, just go out, yeah, you know, this is an old journalism adage, but just go out and tell stories, shows, don't tell, yeah, ver que pasa, you know, I, you know, since you have, I understand people will have expectations of me. I, I'm humbled that people do have them instead of just like ignoring me. But that said, at the end, I can only be my own column. We see some of those tensions in your piece because at the end of the day, as you say, you still have to live up to the aesthetics, the, you know, ethics of being a 
world-class journalist first. Otherwise, you get canned. Otherwise, your pieces aren't credible. And that then gives us another champion in the newsroom with that deeper sense of stories. And perhaps what we want, too, is that breakover moment anyway. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, I hope to be the last quote-unquote Latino columnist at the Los Angeles Times. And what I mean by that is that Whoever follows me, and you know, I'm not going to be at this job forever. I plan to be on it as long as possible, but think people come, people change, people rise up and whatever, and whoever will eventually be my replacement, first and foremost, I hope it's a mujer, because we've had five, again, five Latino males doing this, so I hope the next person is a mujer, but also that the next person is also not put on those expectations that you have to cover Latino issues and Latino issues only, and she is given that liberty to cover whatever on earth she wants to do, so... But it is historic. I mean, and, and one other important thing, my predecessors, they, you know, they were great, but they wrote about Latinos in a way where they had to explain what Latinos were and who we were to a general audience. In my writing, I've always centered who we are. For me, it's like, I'm just going to tell you the stories of where I live. I'm not going to explain to you anything. If you want mm. to learn, you're just going to have to pay attention because we are not a minority in Southern <laughs> California. We haven't been for a long time. Or across the Southwest, we are the you know we are one of the dominant narratives of the story of the story, not a minority. And it's high time that we have a columnist that uh, goes you know goes about it that way. And when does this kick off? When should we be looking for it? Well, very soon. I mean, I, you know, uh, early September. I'm assuming probably after Labor Day. When once people start paying attention, once they get their summer out of whatever was of this summer, what, what, <laughs> yeah. once they get that out of themselves, one final carnazada, then we get back <laughs> to attention and get, you know, get ready for November. So already, I'm already, you know, I, I've written some columns already that are in the works. Of course, I, I try to write for the future instead of for the now, but, you know, news happens, and if I have to write something quick, I will. But I would say by mid-September, I'm already going to be on my roll. Any sneak previews? First of all, we love that you came on the show to let people know this is coming. We wanted to say hi anyway. Can you give us a couple of possible previews? Oh, yeah, let's see. Well, I, I got to do my introductory column where I put out basically what I plan to do, what my expectations are for myself. I'm definitely going to do stories in Southern California, especially evictions are huge right now. So I, I definitely want to attack the issues that are affecting us the most. Coronavirus, I can't escape that. The, 2020 election, got to do that, eviction, but history, food, comida, basically uh, basically everything I've, I'm already doing for the Los Angeles Times, but now with a bigger platform, and now every once in a while I'll be able to give my opinion, and that's, a, that's the most important thing I can say about the columns. I'm not going to be sitting back in my home office and just pontificating about the world. I want to be where the action is. Of course, socially decent and with a mask, of course, personal, you know, I want to be where the people are. I want to be where you know the protests are, los taqueros, lo que sea. I think the real report, uh, you know, the best columnists are out there on the field. Yeah, you, I'll, I'll give my opinion, but I, I, I'd rather put the focus on people I find as opposed to just myself. Well, and that's our ethos as well. You're staying in touch with the community cultural capital. As you proceed in your career and break different barriers i think what's really admirable is that you've always kept that connection and that's important for people to understand and, and for young folks to to also emulate of course we met you as an author uh, and we, of course you're a writer author what are some books that you're working on what's next you i mean i got more space in my library Manu. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do need to work on a big project my agent's been bugging me for a couple years and you know what i gave him some ideas 
that he rejected that turned out to be bestsellers, and then he gave me some ideas that I rejected that turned out to be bestsellers. But the next project I'm working on is actually a collaboration with a professor from Cal State Fullerton and another one from UC Irvine. It's called The People's Guide to Orange County. The University of California Press has a series called The People's Guide to, and it's basically radical histories of cities. They've done one for Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so they're going to do one for Orange County. And it's great because it's, it's basically almost like a guidebook. So we're going to pick an address, we're going to give you the history behind what happened in that address, and then move on. So that's going to come out. I think in the fall of 2021, I mean, we just turned we just the manuscript. You know how manuscripts go. Nine months later, it finally turns into a book. So, a ver, a ver cuando va a salir, but for sure next year, a primero Dios. Fantastic. And who knows, hopefully we'll be through this coronavirus and hopefully we can touch bases to organize a huge signing or reading. So, we got our fingers crossed. And, of course, we look forward to, to reading that. And tell folks how they can keep track of what you're working on and get your latest columns. Yeah, the best way is subscribe to a newsletter that I have, Gustavo Arellano's Weekly, where I give I give like a short little essay or almost like my own personal columna. I pick a theme and go from there. But then I put all the stories I've worked on this that were published in the previous week, all the stories where I was mentioned on. I give a reading, you know, an, an article that I like that I write, a musica también. So if you go to gustavoarellano.org, you could sign up for the newsletter right there. Again, you know, I only send it once a week, every Saturday morning around 8 o'clock Texas time. You know, get your cafecito and your pan dulce and read me no more than five <laughs> minutes. I'm going to rest of your day. Love it. Hey, well, really great to say hi. We've been chatting with our dear friend, Gustavo Arellano, columnist for the Los Angeles Times. We should continue success, and thank you for always staying authentic, Manu. No, gracias a ustedes. Anytime. Uh, uh, ojalá we get to eat uh, in very, very soon. Linda, que bien te ves. Según la red me olvidaste. Pero ese cuento, ¿quién te lo cree? Solo mi número borraste. Pa' que me quieras mentir. Yo tampoco te he olvidado. Desde aquella noche que te fuiste a Madrid. Hasta mi vieja te extraña. Y tú no ves que yo me muero por ti. Por aquí todo ha cambiado. Excepto el amor que yo sentía por ti. Ese culito me extraña. Es una vez loco me trae Parece me tienes mal de la cabeza Hace cuánto tiempo no me besas Qué chingo sería si te regresas Yo tampoco te he olvidado De aquella noche que te fuiste a Madrid Hasta mi vieja te extraña Y tú no ves que yo me muero por ti Por aquí todo ha cambiado Excepto el amor que yo sentía por ti Ese culito me extraña Thank you for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We are joined by Hector De Leon, author of Hector De Leon's Perspective, who's going to give us five takeaways from his recent analysis of registered voters in Harris County. First of all, welcome back to the program, Hector. Thank you for inviting me back. And, of course, I want to remind folks that you are an advisory board member for our program. Additionally, the Hector de Leon Perspective is a private publication that serves as a repository 
for research, data, analysis, and essays that place context to the American Latino experience from culture to politics. And recently, you were preparing for one of your many public presentations, and you gave a deep dive to the voter rolls, and you have five big takeaways to share. Give us the five takeaways overall, and then let's really dive into the update to what are evidently the number of Latinos who can make an impact in the next election. Uh, one of the things that, uh, because people are always thinking about how does the political landscape change, right? What I do is I break it down by age groups, right? And uh, that will basically tell you what's happening. So what we're seeing is that on the top, which is from the youngest registered voters to the oldest registered voters, the combination of that, uh, the entry of new registered voters and the exit of registered voters is what will tell you how a voter roll looks, who's on it, right? So when you look at that and uh, when you think about that, the life expectancy at birth uh, by state, uh, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, is 78.8 years. When you look at a table that breaks down the voter registration roll by age groups at five-year intervals, and you look at uh, the number of people that are 80 years old or older, you see that 80%, about 80%, um, over a little over 80% are folks who do not have a Spanish or Asian surname. That means that eight out of 10 of the folks who are on the voter roll, they're gonna exit out of the voter roll uh, soon, soon, hopefully not for their families, but you know, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> when, when, you, when we're talking about life, we can't control mother nature. So uh, eight out of 10 are probably, uh, uh, as people call non-Hispanic whites. And, uh, and probably also African-Americans, probably mostly uh, non-Hispanic whites. So that means that uh, when you look at that, that, that those are the people that are exiting the voter roll. And then you look at, well, who's coming into the voter roll? And you see that when you look at the voter registration numbers for uh, persons that are 18 to 24 year olds, uh, you see that Spanish surnames are the largest group. 36% of all the uh, uh, persons that are registered to vote uh, that are between 18 and 24 have a Spanish surname. And when you think about, well, 59%, or you say 60% of those do not have a Spanish surname or a nation surname. But when you think about the fact that uh, about 23% of the citizen voting age population in Harris County is African American. That means you minus that 23 from the 60, you have 27% left. That means that Spanish surname uh, registered voters are the largest uh, uh, group of registered voters in that age group. And what that portends is that that's what the future looks like in Harris County. I'd like to pause there because I think those are some powerful statistics. Now, other folks have mentioned that the 
Anglo population is getting older and that the Latino population is younger. What I like that you bring to the table are more concrete numbers, especially for Harris County, and it bears repeating. So based on your analysis, you're saying that the older voters are about 80% Anglo. And those are the folks that do show up. We're using euphemisms. So when we say exit the voter rolls, that means they passed away, they're deceased. But like you mentioned, that's that's just a course of life. And that's what's happening. And Right. And let's say 80% English surname or European, Western European surname. And on the flip side, you're saying that you can see how it's quantified that there's a big influx of the youth, which we expect, who are entering the voting rolls. And based on your analysis, then it appears that Spanish surnames have surpassed the growth of the African-American vote and is taking a larger space than was in the past including that was dominated by the white vote. And that's a big deal for Harris County. So when when does that impact hit home? That's that's the mystery question, right? Probably when people start voting. So if you say, well, the people that turn out the most are in their 40s, you would say we're 20 years away, one generation away from uh, the uh, Spanish earnings being the dominant voter registration group in in Harris County. And there's a lot that goes into that. So I, I want our listeners to understand, too, that I always use the analogy. Voting is like learning grammar. When you know grammar, it's easy to say, well, it was easy to pick up. But you had to learn habits, tactics, practice. Likewise for voting, I talk to young people and it's like, well, why make it complicated to vote? to get registered to vote. There's runoffs, special elections, primary elections, general elections. <laughs> and then I would also add that some candidates don't even have websites. So young people want to look up the information, they can't get to it. So it seems to me that there's different reasons that they don't get engaged. You're saying that the highest level of engagement at this time appears to be when folks are 40. Is that the case then? Once they get, I guess when we, we know that the people that are in the 60s are the ones that turn out. And in any election, they're going to be dominant group. Uh, in any non-presidential election, uh, example, uh, in 2019, there was a uh, Harris County flood control district election. And the, uh, uh, millions and millions of dollars were approved to be spent in Harris County to mitigate flooding. Uh, the folks that voted in that election were basically the average age was probably about 60 to 65 of the, of, of the vote. The average age of the voters was about that, that old. And uh, so it tells you that the folks that tend to vote in, in, uh, when there's an election, it's not that they vote in higher numbers, it's that they're more consistent in in voting and uh, participating in the electoral process. I, I so, would, uh, it's I, just a matter of consistency. I would also add that you see that reflected in how the conventions are run, be it Democrat or Republican. 
there's a lot of complaints about they don't appeal to younger people. Well, they're not. I think they're hitting the demographic that you just described for, for various reasons. Additionally, this whole issue of voting by mail touches on those demographics that you mentioned. And it seems that those aren't really the ways to engage the younger folks. It takes more work, and that may be a test of time to see who gets more involved. I do want to also draw attention to people. We're going to include a link to our last interview because you brought up an important distinction between the quantified population of Latinos in Houston and Harris County and the perception of what that should mean on the voter rolls. That's not quite a specific correlation though, right? There's a big difference between our population representation and our voting representation right um typically folks tend to uh, have it in their mind or the way to see the world that when there's elections that the population that is the largest population in any jurisdiction should be the largest number of voters but when it comes to uh, latinos uh, that cannot be the case because of uh, different statuses that folks have. Some people are the youngest population are Latinos. That means we have a large population of folks that are under 18 years of age. We also have a segment of population, significant segment of the population whose status, uh, as far as citizenship status, uh, they don't have citizenship status. Some of them are legal permanent residents, and some do not have any status. So uh, these folks cannot vote. So when it comes down to it, uh, uh, Latinos only comprise 29%, according to the latest American Community Survey, 29% of the citizen voting age population in Harris County. That means that of all the Latinos, I think we are like 1.6, 1.7 million here in Harris County, only 29% are 18 years of age or older and are U.S. citizens and can register to vote and participate in an election. So uh, uh, when you think about that, at this point, uh, Spanish surnames account for 23% of the registered voters. If we were to say that all those folks are Latino, that means we're uh, 23%. We need to be at 29% of the registered voters. So we're six uh, percent short, short, but I think we're growing. And uh, you know, it, it takes a while, as you say, to actually get people to uh, get the message, to start participating, so on and so forth. And I believe it, that the when you look at the voter registration roll, and you see that the, uh, of the folks that are eighteen to twenty-four, that Spanish surnames comprise the largest number. Uh, that tells you that the message is getting through and there's more uh, Latinos that are registering to vote. Now the next step is participating in the election. So uh, things are not as dire as people make them out to be. It's just a matter of numbers. And the numbers say we're only 29% of the citizen voting age population. So what we need to do is to try to maximize <laughs> Uh, uh, that number and uh, it's already significant uh, at this point the data suggests that 
that uh, we are now probably next to whites, the second largest uh, voting registration group or voter regi registered group uh, in Harris County. Of the people that are registered to vote in Harris County, Latinos are probably already uh, the second largest group. Now, that's happened very quietly and without fanfare. I don't know why, because, probably because most people don't look at the numbers the way I do. So nobody actually is looking at that sort of thing. But at this point, I'm pretty confident that Latinos are uh, the second largest group of registered voters in Harris County, next to, to whites. Well, I would theorize that part of the reason that's not making news is for what you brought up earlier and that we have made news because of our uh, census return rate in the past census were quantified at 45% of the population. And as you mentioned, people think that automatically means all those folks vote. That's not the case. I'll also point out we are a national show, but the numbers and the breakdown you provide for Harris County can be applied to other areas as well. And I think it's a smart way to break things down. Additionally, you mentioned that. Well, let, me, let me just point out that in Harris County, where 29% of the citizen voting age population statewide, that's what we are. What we are in Texas, 29%, or even like maybe it may be 30% statewide. So uh, the numbers that we're seeing here in Harris County probably are applicable to the state of Texas and probably nationwide. So. It's like a microcosm of, of the uh, Latino community in any jurisdiction. Did you mention also that that 29 percentile figure has increased since we last spoke? Right. And, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the, in the previous program, that uh, people wonder why the political landscape uh, changed from, let's say, even 2000 to 2010 here in Harris County to now. Well, in 2000, when you actually look at census data or American Communities Citizen Voting Age Population data, what it showed in 2000 is that outside the legal boundaries of the city of Houston, non-Hispanic whites accounted for about 70% of the citizen voting age population. By 2010, it was down to uh, 51%. So with uh, the um, continuing, uh, continual growth of the span, uh, Hispanic or Latino uh, citizen voting age population, that means that other groups are it's going down. So uh, now, according to the latest American Community Survey that was released last year, I think in January or February, Latinos are now 29% of the citizen voting age population when in the last uh, census we were at 27%. I'm thinking that probably once the numbers are done and released for 2010, I mean for 2020, uh, that may uh, inch up even more. Uh, I'm not sure how much, but uh, it could go to 30, 31%. So when you, there's more people that are eligible to register to vote, 
the end result will be more people will register to vote and then more people will actually vote. So it's a slow process, but we can see it and we can see that the, uh, uh, the Spanish surname vote continually grows and it has been growing in Harris County and will continue to grow. Maybe not at the pace that a lot of people want or expect, but, you know, there's a lot of challenges in our, <laughs> right. com in our community. Our community, you know, folks are busy working and trying to survive, and their focus may not be with the uh, political people who are political activists or political insiders who know everything about politics or think they know everything about politics, and they expect uh, that everybody else uh, to be like them and to think like them. And and that's not the way life works. Uh, some people are just uh, too busy trying to survive. That not that they don't care about politics, is that it's not the thing that they're focused on <laughs> uh, on a daily basis. On a daily basis, their focus is survival and but not necessarily voting. <laughs> additionally, I think your analysis is a fantastic argument for candidates to apply a more sophisticated approach to the Latino electorate. And one quick example would be you can't really force a 19-year-old to watch the Democrat or Republican convention. They just, <laughs> and it's not geared for them. That to me shows the level of disengagement. And like you say, the, the candidates have a certain will that they want to impose. That may not be the right way to reach this certain aspects of the electorate. I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were you about to say? Right. Well, uh, I, one of the, uh, the uh, five takeaways is that uh, when you look at the voter roll, uh, four out of every 10 registered voters in Harris County is a millennial or Generation Z. Four out of every 10. So uh, their participation is crucial to voter turnout. That means voter turnout will be uh, higher if millennials and folks in Generation X, I mean Z, turn, turn out to vote. Uh, so it is important that people get engaged, but I, I, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, everything that it's old is new. So you always have young people uh, participating in certain movements. And uh, and the attitude is always sort of like if it's new, it's a new thing, but it's not necessarily new. It's happened before. <laughs> and uh, something that you are right about is that it's not necessarily just young people who are disengaged or that uh, uh, public candidates, candidates or public officials are not connecting with. There's always a disconnect. Historically, there's always been a disconnect among generations. And uh, so the question is, how do you get, uh, engage them? So if you're a candidate or a party, you have to be as creative as possible or uh, to be able to, uh, to engage uh, the electorate, especially if it's a significant portion uh, of the voting population. Uh, but we also, you know, haven't worked. I mean, for 15 years, I worked to try to mobilize Latinos to vote. 
before I came to the county. I've been involved in this in 30, for 30 years, 15 years in the community as a grunt, running a, a nonprofit organization, um, trying to mobilize Latinos to go vote, and 15 as uh, in my current capacity as an election official here in Harris County. And I, I realized that it's very difficult to actually, uh, one, engage people, and two, uh, to try to get them out to vote. And uh, uh, so on one end, as a uh, um, community organizer, I was trying to push them to the polls. The, the large responsibility as actual an election official is to, to provide as much access to the voting process, to voting locations, to all voters. So, uh, and if we do it just right, then that probably has an impact on voter turnout. But given uh, from the end of what I'm doing now as an elections official, we could do everything perfect, just right. But in the end, it's up to the individual to decide whether <laughs> they want to they want to participate or not. And one of the things that I realize, as much as I want people to come out and vote, as many people as possible to see how that works, if we have high voter turnout, how that actually has an impact on on the uh, public officials and candidates and so on and parties and so on and so forth. Uh, if we actually, you know, do what I've been wanting to actualize for 30 years, if that happens, uh, well, I'm not sure. I want it to happen, whether it will happen or not. I don't know. But one thing I have realized is that we live in a democratic republic, a democracy. And I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, uh, English philosopher, who said that uh, that is the strength and the weakness of a democratic society that people have a choice whether they want to participate or not. Unfortunately, that is, uh, history tells us that that's, that's the truth that we cannot, the voter turnout basically tells us that's the truth that we can't deny. <laughs> <laughs> but for people like me and you and others who have yearned for more people to vote and who have pushed for it and worked for it, we want that. Uh, so what I'm doing through my uh, website is to try to provide information to people so they can have some clarity and some context to what's happened in the past, what's happening now, and hopefully uh, to, to provide some guidance as to what will happen in the future. So uh, that's what we're doing. I'm not sure if I covered all the... Uh, all the um, Did you get all the five points? <laughs> all the five points, but... Uh, well, let me add this while you go over the points. The, the ones you provided are profound enough. Um, but if you have any more to add, fantastic. But I do want to interject two quick things. One, you went the high road. Let me go the low road. <laughs> because one tactic then would be to chill participation and dissuade folks from thinking that their vote matters. The other thing I would add is that reaching out to new constituencies of voters is hard work. Beto O'Rourke did a good job of it. That's actually cliche to bring up. What is overlooked is that when he had his first Facebook Live post, they didn't have that many viewers. 
Now, I want to remind people, he visited every county in Texas and he kept hitting social media hard so that as that built and built, he wound up packing community college campuses as well as colleges. And that's that same group that I keep hearing folks say are not engaged. Well, they were. Again, regardless of how you feel about Hammer's campaign, you cannot deny that heck, uh, that Beto O'Rourke got folks out. I'm bringing it up to say it takes that sort of work. I don't see that energy happening now, but we also can't ignore the fact that it sounds like you're saying that that young vote and the Latino vote will be playing a big role in races up and down the ballot. Now, is it enough to turn, as the cliche goes, Texas blue? We don't know, but that's not the actual case that we're arguing. We're trying to break down in a more precise way what the voters' role look like. Is that all fair to say? Right, right. And it is important that young people vote, especially among Latinos, because about... Um, Hold on, let me see if it's 39%. I think it's 49% of the Spanish surname vote, registered voters, are 18 to 49 years old. Wow. So, so if Latinos, if young people don't vote, it's going to have an impact on, on, the, on how high the turnout is for Latinos. I think it's 49%, but the, I need to double check, though. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, and I will tell you that what you mentioned about the turnout in 2018, it's always about context. And that's exactly what I try to do, you know, place context to things. That the turnout in Texas and in Harris County was bigger for uh, young people in 2018 but that's in comparison to other midterm elections. I think the turnout for 18 to 24 year olds was like 35%. 35% of all registered voters that are 18 to 24 years old um, voted. But that's the comparison is that in other midterm elections in Texas, that turnout was like from 9 to 12%. Wow. See, so, so the vote uh, would say tripled, but it's not where you want it to be. I mean, we uh, uh, we can do better than that. We if we did fifty percent at the eighteen to twenty four year old letter, it'd be historic. If you did sixty percent, you would be shattering records that oh, nice. may never ever be uh, <laughs> uh, 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 done again. But uh, that's what we're when you look at voting and a data. It always has to do with what happened uh, in the previous election. So uh, when people look at it alone and somebody were to tell you, well, yeah, the turnout for 18 to 24 year olds in 2018 was like 35, 37%. And people would say, what? That's it? And people would be down and depressed about it. But when you tell them, you know, in the last midterm, it was only 12%. <laughs> then you can see, ah, okay, okay. So I guess the work we did paid off. And that's always a big challenge when you work at the grassroots level. And, uh, you know, I remember working for 15 years.
mobilized people. And I, have to, I didn't have access to the data that I have now. It's public information. And then you're able to analyze it, sort it, crunch it. And you see now that the, that the work that you did was paying off when you're able to quantify it in some manner. Because when you're out there and the media and the narratives that exist continually say, ah, people didn't vote, ah, you, it actually gets to you. And I, in part, that may be part of the reason that I decided, you know what, it's time for me to, to uh, go do something else uh, as far as working for nonprofits. Because you burn out, you, you do the best you can, you're emotionally invested in this. And... And when things don't work out the way you want them to work out, when people don't come out to vote, it impacts you. And you say, you know what, it's time to leave this work for younger people because it's, it's hard. It's harder and harder on you emotionally. And uh, so if anybody's out there listening, uh, understand that there's a, a group of people out there who really care, who want you to go out and vote. And... Uh, whether they continue to work at this on this at this effort uh, may be uh, directly uh, uh, based on whether you go out and vote or not. Some people may throw up their hands and give up because you, you're not paying attention and you're not listening and you're not turning out the vote the way you want them to turn out the vote. So on that uh, note, let's do the work. So mention. When the general election is, when is the last day to get registered to vote, and when early voting starts? Maybe we can get a few people to get their neighbors and cousins and nephews fired up. Well, the election is November 3rd, but uh, early voting begins October 13th. That means people will be able to go vote starting on October 13th. And in Texas... uh, um, you can register to vote 30 days prior to an election. So if November 3rd, uh, if the election's on November 3rd, just count back 30 days and you have enough time. You have to register to vote. If you've never been registered, you have to register to vote. If you're registered but don't remember where or what address because you moved, update your voter registration record. You can go to the uh, Harris County Tax Assessor Collector slash voter registrar and your name will be there if you register to vote you just need to find out if you're still on the voter roll and if you're on the voter roll what address they have for you and if it's not the the address where you live now um you can update it so uh, uh all the information now is available online uh so every uh, every transaction pertaining to these uh, these important issues, you can find information online. So uh, I would encourage people to go to the Harris County uh, Voter Registrar or Harris County Tax Assessor Collector slash Voter Registrar for voter registration information and for the Harris County Clerk's Office for election information. That's where you get all the dates and all the important things you need to know once you're ready to go out and cast your vote. Uh, so uh, under uh, this administration, uh, this county clerk administration, we're doing everything possible to make sure that we create an infrastructure that will provide all voters as much access to the voting process as possible. So uh, help us out by taking advantage of it. 
Fantastic. We've been chatting with Hector De Leon and getting his five takeaways from the August 2020 Harris County voter registration roll analysis. He's the author of the Hector De Leon Perspective. Thanks a lot for all this information and all the work you do to get the vote out. Well, thank you so much. Ay, yo no sé, yo no sé qué me diste a mí Cuando yo te vi y te sentí Ay, perdí la cabeza Tú eres lo que necesito yo Como me lo recibo el doctor Por la noche, en la mañana, toda la semana Te quiero